McCarthyism, anyone? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. We look at Trump's secret police attacking Americans on the streets of Portland, and we wonder, this is America? How do we get here? Nothing in history just pops up out of nowhere. Painting political dissent as the dangerous enemy that must be feared and crushed, perhaps violently, has its ugly precedent. What makes American citizens accepting of anti-democratic tyrants? World War I arose from the shadows of 19th century nationalism, and of course that war begat World War II. Our current president, Donald Trump, also did not suddenly arise out of nothing. He's certainly not your average Republican, but neither was Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy, another bullying publicity hound. He, too, loved the cameras, and they graciously served him as well. He rose to power with enthusiastic support from a surprising number of Americans. How did McCarthy do it? Why is he so disgraced today? In the midst of this uh, wannabe fascistic, frightening presidency of Donald Trump, does history give us a reason to hope for a better, more sane future? Our guest today, Larry Ty, writes in his new book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, quote, The lesson of Joe McCarthy and our other demagogues is that they fell even faster than they rose once America saw through them and reclaimed its better self. In researching this book, Larry Ty gave un- gained unprecedented access to McCarthy's surviving family members, former colleagues, friends, adversaries, and hundreds of others close to the man who destroyed many careers and even entire lives, who whipped the nation into a frenzy of paranoia, accusation, loyalty oaths, and terror for four long years. Larry Ty, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. So it's great to be with you, and I love the title of your program. Ah, it's a hard sell, I'll tell you. We picked this before Trump got elected. Who knew? Larry Tite is best-selling author of Bobby Kennedy and Satchel, as well as Superman, The Father of Spin, Homelands, and Rising from the Rails, which I loved a long time ago, and co-author with Kitty Dukakis of Shock. Previously an award-winning reporter and national writer at the Boston Globe and Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, he now, in his spare time, apparently runs the Boston-based Healthcare Fellowship. Before we begin, I, I have a story about Joe McCarthy and my uncle, my mother's brother, Jerry Wander. They served on the same airplane as Marines in the Pacific Theater. Two short illustrations uh, from uh, Jerry Wander's uh, son, my cousin. Joe McCarthy made himself supply master, specifically getting booze to the servicemen. Second, it was my Uncle Jerry who actually was a tail gunner. He operated the machine gun. McCarthy had a picture taken, so the story goes, sitting in that seat. One photo 
Thus, he became known widely across America as Tail Gunner Joe. Perhaps you heard such things. My guess is it's not surprising to you. So it's not only not surprising, I heard those things in part from Jerome Wander via other things that he had said in the years that he was around to tell his stories. And he basically had called McCarthy an opportunist early on. He said that McCarthy wanted his combat record to spruce up his political resume. He said that McCarthy mainly flew milk runs when he was in the South Pacific. And he was angered that McCarthy was trying to spruce up his record in this way. So I think Jerry Wander is a big part of my story, and it's a wonderful kicking-off point for our discussion. Oh, good. Yeah, I, he was my uncle. I loved him. Uh, and the title of your book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. You probably could have chosen many descriptive words about the man. Why demagogue? What does that mean, demagogue? So demagogue has this sort of ominous tone, and it's something that we associate in terms of these political leaders who tap into public fears and raise the hope of solving problems without any real solutions. Historically, we've associated, and I certainly have associated in my mind, demagogue with places like fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and forever authoritarian Russia. And it's something that I never thought of as being part of our American fabric. But in fact, there is a uniquely American strain of demagogue going back to our founding fathers, people that I think your listeners will recognize, like Huey Long and the jubating radio preacher from Michigan, Father Charles Coughlin. People like that were promoting their brands of xenophobia and anti-Semitism long before Joe McCarthy came on the scene. People afterwards, from David Duke to George Wallace mm. to today's president, did the same thing. What is unique about Joe McCarthy is that he was the one who built on everything that came before and became the archetype for came after, with what came after. And you're exactly right. There are lots of other words we could have used, and perhaps the simplest might have been the word bully. Yeah, he certainly was that, and uh, probably pretty much everyone today has heard of McCarthyism, which is steeped in disgrace. I've been amazed that at least one person I know, believe it or not, still thinks of him as heroic, fighting the evils of communism, really. And all this happened over 60 years ago. Tell us about the hearings and how McCarthyism is best defined. What kind of ism? Sure. So can I take us back to the, with a quick story, back to the very beginning, the day that I think McCarthyism was born in sure. America? Yeah. And that is February 9th, 1950. It's the famous day on the Republican calendar because it's the birthday of Republicans' patron saint, Abraham Lincoln. And every Lincoln's Day, there is a dinner held all across America uh -huh. by Republicans to raise money. If you're a prominent U.S. Senator or Governor, you got invited to choice locations like New York or Washington, the Chicago or Boston. If you were Joe McCarthy, a backbencher who had absolutely nothing to his credit to put him on anybody's radar screen, he was invited appropriately to what his staff called Wheeling West by God, Virginia. <laughs> Go ahead. And he shows up there that night with a briefcase containing two speeches. 
unsure until the last minute which one he's going to give. One speech was on a topic that he actually knew something about, which was national housing policy. And had he given that speech that night, 70 years later, you and I wouldn't know who Joe McCarthy was. But instead, he reached into that briefcase and pulled out a speech that others had written that he may have been seeing for the very first time. And it was a speech on a barn burner of an issue, which was not just the issue of anti-communism and not just the idea that there might be traitors in our own government, but McCarthy the cowboy realized that if he actually needed the traitors and count them, that that would make worse. He delivered that speech. He waved with his right hand a list that he said had 205 communists in our very own State Department, communists that Truman, the president, should have known about and weeded out. And he went on from there, basically ensuring, as happened, that he would make the front page in every newspaper in America. And I think that night of February 9th, 1950, is when Joe McCarthy came out of the shadows and when what we know now as McCarthyism, which is synonymous with reckless accusation and political double-dealing, when McCarthyism was actually given birth. I, why am I reminded of uh, some, I don't remember the date, in 2015, when Donald Trump came down the escalator. It's like he was delivered by God somehow, uh, and, and a lot of people see him that way still today. It's, it's amazing to me. Now, I, I grew up in, in the 50s and 60s. I never could have imagined a president like Donald Trump. John Dean, uh, who hopefully everybody remembers or research if you don't, called uh, your book an essential primer for the times of Trump. And John Kerry, former senator, 24, uh, 2004 nominee for president, and Obama's secretary of state, said in your book, to understand Donald Trump, you have to understand Joe McCarthy first. And Ty's your guide. What did he mean? What, what are the most relevant attributes that uh, McCarthy and uh, Donald Trump share? So could I read you two quotes that I think answer that question? Absolutely. One quote, it, it might be the most famous quote that Donald Trump delivered in the 2016 campaign. And he boasted to his supporters, and here's where I quote, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters. And that, to me, said it all, not just about how loyal his supporters were, but how arrogant this guy was. Exactly 62 years before, the polling pioneer George Gallup said something chillingly similar about Joe McCarthy's supporters. Gallup wrote, even if it were known that McCarthy had killed five innocent children, his supporters would probably still go along with him. And I think not only is that wow. true, but it suggests the way these two mirrored, the way Trump mirrored McCarthy. With both of them, when they lacked solutions, they pointed fingers. Uh. With both of them, when they were attacked, they aimed a wrecking ball at their assailants. With both of them, when one charge that they made about a manufactured enemy was exposed as hollow, they lobbed a fresh bombshell. Uh. And to me, as a lifelong journalist, maybe most disturbing, with both of them, when the news got bad, they would point the finger and blame the newsman. And it just, it's eerie. I didn't mention 
Donald Trump, other than in my preface and in my epilogue, that you could argue that he is there on every page. <laughs> ah, oh, is that scary? Now, I, I have, of course, run into people who love Donald Trump. I was in Pennsylvania, actually, mid mid Pennsylvania. Uh huh. And my sense is, and I, I didn't ask them why. I didn't feel like getting into it for some strange reason. But these are people who work hard, play by the rules, and I don't think they feel like they're getting ahead. I wonder if that was the case uh, for McCarthy, too, about, you know, a populist leader uh, or sort of hero uh, who becomes kind of a bully. I, I just I'm curious about the, the appeal that McCarthy may have had to and frankly still does to so many uh, people. Your, your thoughts on that? So my thoughts are you're exactly right, that both of them really respond to what are very true and legitimate concerns. With Donald Trump, the economic security that he is trying to appeal to in terms of fashioning his would-be solutions, that economic security is real even if his solutions aren't. With Joe McCarthy, the fear of the Soviet Union in the early 1950s was real. We had exposed the um, atomic spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, we had watched China go from a nationalist country to become red China. We were about to teach our kids, and this is something your listeners won't believe unless they live through it. We were about to teach our kids the famous duck and cover strategy, uh -huh. which meant that when the atomic bomb came, all you had to do to protect yourself was to duck under a desk and cover your head with your hands, and then it would be okay. And we were afraid, and we were afraid of a real villain, which was the Soviet Union. The question was, did that fear translate, the way Joe McCarthy said, into the easy solution of just finding those communists who are hi hiding behind every pillar in the State Department? And the truth is, by the time Joe McCarthy came along, there were real spies before that, but the 24 carat ones had been rooted out he was late to the hunt, and the notion that finding spies burrowed into our government was going to solve these problems was not real. It was no more real than the idea that building a wall between the United States and Mexico is going to solve our economic insecurity. Well, of course, uh, Trump's virus, he says, well, just keeping people out from China and, you know, those others from south of the border, that keeps us safe. It's all a bunch of total nonsense, but people seem to connect with that because, as you say, it's easy to point fingers rather than do anything. Maybe we could com so maybe we could combine those two things. Maybe we could just duck and cover and that would work with the virus as well. The, <laughs> the simplistic solutions of yes. one era make no more sense in another, and you're just right. But the A long time ago, I had, there was a, a, a friend of mine, a minister of a local Unitarian church who died a long time ago, unfortunately, at 52. But he said, you know, Bert, there's only two things that motivate people in politics, fear and reassurance. And that, that has proven to be right over and over and over again. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody to participate. We're speaking with our guest today, author Larry Ty, whose new book is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And 
one of the many odd consistencies of Donald Trump is how he clearly loves cruelty, especially when they're powerless or down. How McCarthy-esque is that? So it's sadly McCarthy-esque. I have a chapter in my book called The Body Count. And what that tries to do, partly inspired by what's going on today, is go back and look and say, when somebody in a position of power in America targets someone else and blames them for various problems and calls them names, does that have any impact? Is it merely a momentary annoyance or over time does it have an impact? And what I found out was that there were nearly a dozen people who I could point to in a definitive way with real-time testimony of their contemporaries, their parents, I'm sorry, their children, their grandchildren, that what Joe McCarthy did to those people caused them to take their own lives. They were people like an engineer named Ray Kaplan that McCarthy was about to call and testify about his allegations that the Voice of America was somehow trying to sabotage our disinformation campaigns with the Soviet Empire. Ray Kaplan was an innocent engineer. He was caught in the middle of things. He took a trip one day to MIT to try to straighten things out, to get the MIT scientists who had worked with him to explain to McCarthy that, in fact, Kaplan had been doing the right thing all along and helping choose sites for these radio transmitters. Kaplan goes to MIT, can't find the people he needs. When he leaves campus, a truck is coming down Massachusetts Avenue right in front of the university. The truck slows down. Kaplan runs out in front of it and is crushed and killed. The coroner ruled it a suicide. Kaplan left behind a suicide note explaining to his wife and young son how totally fraught he had been about his fears of being called before McCarthy's committee and being blamed for alleged sabotage. Case like case of this, I saw of people who went as far as to take their own lives. Mm. There were beyond that hundreds and maybe thousands of people whose careers were ruined, yes. and more importantly, maybe hundreds of thousands and maybe millions to this day who are afraid to stand up and talk about any view that might be get them labeled as a socialist or a communist. We see even in today's election that fear of being pronounced a red still being there simmering under the surface in America. And I, I'm guessing that Kaplan was Jewish, as, was, as were the Rosenbergs, who uh, were, you know, put to death as well. I, I, you know, and, and we've had demagogues in the past who have, who have uh, pointed the finger at Jews, the other. And I wonder if that was a, uh, and, and it's sometimes part of uh, populist uh, appeal. I, I wonder, you did a lot of research. I wonder what, if anything, you found out about that aspect. So I found out that in addition to the things we know about McCarthy, which is that he was a red baiter and that he helped foment what is known as the lavender scare against gays. Uh, yes. As somebody who is Jewish and who's written on Jewish themes in the past, I was fascinated by whether McCarthy was an anti-Semite. And I tried to evaluate all the evidence and be nuanced and fair to him in a way that he wouldn't have been to the people that he was accusing. And my conclusion, which I wrote about in a piece for the Forward and recently uh. for the Smithsonian, was that there's nothing 
that we can um, conclude other than that Joe McCarthy was, in fact, anti-Semitic. And that started with his effort long before he became known as the communist hunter, his effort to defend the perpetrators of one of the bloodiest massacres in World War II, the famous Malmedy massacre, where the perpetrators were tried at Nuremberg, they were convicted and sentenced to death, and there was one member of Congress who took up their cause, and that was Joe McCarthy. He said at the time he was doing it because he didn't want us to be imposing a victor's justice, but he couldn't resist going after the Jewish prosecutor, saying that a Jew couldn't be fair in this kind of proceeding. In his life, all throughout, throughout his writings and testimony from his friends, he would use words like heeb, mm-hmm. which is a well-known slur, mm-hmm. and a less well-known slur, but a common one at the time was the word sheeny. And beyond his language, when he went after, in the most famous step too far that John McCarthy made, when he took on the U.S. Army, which uh-huh, was yes. the enemy that was too big to bully, the Anti-Defamation League looked at the fact that a, an extraordinarily disproportionate number of his targets were Jews, and the Anti-Defamation League called for an investigation. And my investigation concludes that Joe McCarthy, for whatever reason, was anti-Semitic, and that he hired his most famous aide that he ever hired was a guy named Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. who was a smart Jewish lawyer from New York. And Joe McCarthy told his friends, and I think he was being candid and honest, when he said he was hiring Roy Cohn, a Jew, to protect him against the charges being leveled against him of being an anti-Semite. And it's not me saying that. It was Joe McCarthy telling his friends who later told various interviewers over the years. Huh. Wow. And I thought I knew Joe McCarthy. You thought you knew Joe McCarthy, dear listener. Wow. Now, he's from originally Appleton, Wisconsin. I wonder if you could bring us back to that first race for circuit judge and tell us lessons he learned from it and and that perhaps we should learn uh, in understanding the rise of Joe as demagogue. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to take you back to an election even before that, which oh, I think is where he really set his template. And this is when he was a young, well, actually not so young, law student at Marquette University. He had managed... He, he had waited to go to high school until he was 20. He showed how smart he was by finishing four years of high school in a single year. He enrolled at Marquette as an engineering student and then switched to law, and he ran for president of his law school class. He was running against a very affable guy named Charlie Curran, and they decided that they made a gentleman's agreement that each would vote for the other, and that first election ended up in a dead tie. There was a round two, and McCarthy ended up winning by two votes, Charlie Curran's for him and his for himself. Curran was outraged and said, we had a deal. How could you do this? McCarthy, in a classic McCarthy line that would ring reminiscent of everything that he did later on, he said, look, I was telling people to vote for the best man. I was convinced that I was the best man, and you wouldn't want me to vote for anybody but the best man, would you? So Kern was outraged and thought, this is a double-dealing, duplicitous Joe McCarthy, the Joe McCarthy we would see forever. But the story didn't end there, and it suggests that there is a nuance in McCarthy's story. 
Shortly after Kern's father died, Joe McCarthy borrowed a car, borrowed money for gasoline, and drove to the funeral in a gesture that touched Charlie Curran so much that while over the years he would tell the story of the election, he would also end it by saying, but Joe McCarthy proved to be a stand-up guy at my father's funeral. I wondered, the second half of the story is important to me because I wrote the book in part because a woman that I interviewed for my biography of Bobby Kennedy, a woman named Ethel Kennedy, Uh Bobby's widow, told me that Joe McCarthy might have seemed like a monster to much of America, but to the Kennedys, he was just plain good fun. And that, to me, was counterintuitive and shocking. But that side of McCarthy, the side that Charlie Kern saw and the side that Ethel Kennedy saw, explained why the people of Wisconsin overwhelmingly elected him their U.S. senator twice and why, in America, by 1954... Joe McCarthy was the second most popular politician, trailing only Dwight Eisenhower. Absolutely amazing stories. Well, it must have been fascinating uh, uh, interviews and doing the research. I can imagine it must have kept you up at night sometimes, some of these things you found out about this guy and how he could seem like such a, a fun guy to somebody like Ethel Kennedy uh, and then to a, mon- a monster to so many other people. Now, Wisconsin... McCarthy followed Bob LaFollette Jr. as U.S. Senator from Wisconsin. His father, fighting Bob LaFollette, somebody I'm a big fan of, a persistent, fierce opponent of the U.S. getting into the First World War. He was a liberal Republican, Bob LaFollette. Much of Wisconsin is traditionally liberal. How did McCarthy, the antithesis of liberalism, manage to get elected and re-elected from that state had he not been an FDR New Deal Democrat? What happened? So what happened was when McCarthy ran for his first office of district attorney, he ran, as you say, as an FDR New Deal loving liberal Democrat. But Joe McCarthy was more than anything an opportunist, and he realized that getting elected in rural Wisconsin as a New Deal Democrat was not going to happen. So sometime, probably in the middle of the night when nobody was looking, he switched his party affiliation, not just to Republican, but he realized that in order to take on Bob LaFollette in the primary, he had to find an excuse, a, a part of the party that would appeal to, that, that he could appeal to. And that part of the party was known as the stalwart Republicans, the most conservative wing of the party. McCarthy became their standard bearer. He took on LaFollette from the right. And even though LaFollette had this long record, the LaFollettes were to Wisconsin probably analogous to what the Kennedys were to Massachusetts. They were a political royalty. And yet McCarthy managed to partly attack LaFollette on legitimate issues, which was he had been in Washington long enough that maybe it was time for new leadership partly to strike below the belt and lie about LaFollette's record and where LaFollette lived and whether he was a true Wisconsinite. And he took him on. He played clean. He played dirty. Mm. He beat LaFollette, who by that time, I think, was tired enough Mm. and was ill enough that he was unsure that he really even wanted to win another term. But what was extraordinary is the LaFollette story generally ends with people saying McCarthy beat him and LaFollette 
tragically lost this election to the ultimate cold warrior and demagogue. But what happened a few years later was when Joe McCarthy got true power in Washington, he threatened to call a follow-up before his committee and raise questions about the left leanings of a follow staff when he had been a senator. And 50 years later, his son, Bronson LaFollette, who was the attorney general, who had been the attorney general of Wisconsin, Bronson tells me that he is convinced the reason his father put a gun to his head and killed himself was because he was so upset by the prospect of having his record disparaged by Joe McCarthy. So I put him on my list, this incredibly tragic and powerful figure, Bob LaFollette, as one more victim of Joe McCarthy. And it's not me again making that connection. It's his smart son, Bronson, who knew enough about what went on with his father and what went on McCarthy, with McCarthy to make that kind of a nexus. Boy, it sure sounds like a fun guy, as Ethel said. My goodness. Now, Incredible. And... You know, earlier, like in the in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of the, the farmers, there were small farms in America, actually. it's There really were. And there was the Democrat farm labor movement, and there was a lot of what they call prairie populism, which was pretty left-leaning. I, I, I wonder, is there some kind of natural connection between populism and demagoguery? I, I've a long thought that, you know, populism, progressive populism isn't, bad, that it can be a good thing, but how often does it lead to demagoguery? Is it like a necessary connection, do you think? So it leads to it too often. I think, like you, I grew up thinking of populism as a progressive force, that it was farmers asserting their rights, that it was workers asserting their rights. In fact, often that kind of instinct for justice is turned on its head, and Today we see it in Donald Trump calling himself a populist and going to rural parts of America and going to the heartland and saying, I'm your advocate, I'm the one who's going to clean out those skunks and that swamp in Washington. Uh That's what Huey Long did years before Joe McCarthy. He called himself the leader who was going to come in and represent the common person. But in every one of these cases, the populist who becomes the demagogue perverts this whole sense of what populism is. They become more dictatorial and scapegoating than populistic. Populism, when it blames the fact that the wealthy have taken control of too much of our resources, I find compelling. Populism, when it says that we have to find scapegoats for this, and it's not just the wealthy, it's the Jews, uh-huh. it's the gays, it's the the communists hiding behind pillars in the State Department, it's the Mexicans coming across our border. That's when it gets into demagoguery, and that is a Rubicon that populists pass at our peril. Wow. And good analysis. I had certainly not put that together before. I learned so much doing this show. Uh, For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest is Larry Tai, who's written a lot of really good books. This new one is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. We spoke about Roy Cohn a little bit before. 
How did homosexuality and the fear of being exposed as such enter the picture? What was the concern about David Shine's special relationship with Roy Cohn? So there were two concerns about homosexuality in the McCarthy era. One was the concern, which I think was wrong, about um, whether or not Cohn and Shine were lovers, and that was something that both of them denied. But that was an illegitimate question to ask. Who cared whether they were, and why should that, if they were, why should that be a reason to disparage them? And the reason that that was a reason to disparage them was because of their own hypocrisy, because if they were lovers, at the same time that they were rooting out gays in the government uh-huh. and disparaging homosexuality, it suggested their hypocritical, that, that they were hypocrites. And, and we know whatever David Shine was, David Shine went on to marry a former Miss America and had a number of kids and a seemingly um, very straight relationship. Roy Cohn, on the other hand, who always to the end denied that he was gay, died of AIDS, had lots of lovers who publicly talked about him before and after he died, and the idea of that hypocrisy, the same as the hypocrisy of a Jewish lawyer enabling Joe McCarthy's search for disproportionate number of Jews in the Army and other institutions, it was the hypocrisy that I think brought them down in the end in lots of ways. Uh, yeah, well, let's hope that hypocrisy does that. Let's hope people catch on to it before it gets too late. And dominating the media is key for any politician, getting free TV time, you know, the, uh, uh, the current uh, electronic gizmos, the whole Internet thing. <laughs> uh, you can tell my age here. And so much of politics is theater. In 2016, the media loved Donald Trump. He got way more coverage than his 15 or so Republican competitors because it was entertaining. How did the press make Joe the most publicized politician in America. So they did it from the very beginning with McCarthy pulling the strings. And let's go back to that event that we talked about in Wheeling, West Virginia in February of 1950. It was not accidental that Joe McCarthy chose a place like that to come out with this new anti-communist blueprint for his political career. He understood that if he were to unveil his charges let's say in Washington, D.C., the reporters who would be covering Uh, his speech would know who to call instantaneously at the State Department to get the other side and to point the finger and say this guy is a hoax. You do it in Wheeling, West Virginia, and as it happened, the reporters were just what McCarthy expected. They were a local reporter from the Wheeling Intelligencer newspaper and a local AP person. They printed what McCarthy said, He brilliantly delivered the speech as a dinner speech, which meant to make their deadlines, there was no choice, even if they had known who to call, to get comment. And time after time with McCarthy's charges, he ended up in the next day on page one, and the response ended up the day after that on page 24. He knew how to play the press. He knew how to charm the press. And like Donald Trump, when he couldn't win over the press to his side... He knew how to bully the press. And McCarthy did that time and again with, most notably, a guy named Drew Pearson. Ah. His staunchest critic 
the most well-read columnist in America in the 1950s, and a guy that McCarthy physically accosted when he ran into him in the coat check room at a supper club. And Pearson would have been truly pummeled if a famous Quaker peacemaker named Richard Nixon hadn't stepped between the two. But after that, McCarthy went after his sponsors of his radio show, a famous hat company called Adam Hat, and he knew how to get a reporter where it hurt, which was in the pocketbook with their sponsors. And McCarthy, with his attacks on Drew Pearson, sent a message to every reporter in America, you take me on at your peril. Wow. Yeah, this is radio, or you would have seen my jaw dropping in telling that story. And now, <laughs> it's really, McCarthy was in the Senate when Eisenhower was president. Uh, though they were both in the same party, Eisenhower made certain never to say his name in public. They did not get along. Did Eisenhower help or hurt McCarthy more by his studious ignoring of the man? Eisenhower took some heat for not doing anything about it, but perhaps Eisenhower was being uh, a little bit foxy there. Did, did he help or hurt McCarthy more by his studious ignoring of the guy? So I think Eisenhower did a lot of noble things in his presidency. Handling Joe McCarthy the way, that, the way he did was not one of them. From the day I took office... At the beginning of 1953, his brother, Milton, mm -hmm. was whispering in his ear, saying, give up some of your enormous popularity and take down this bully, Joe McCarthy. Eisenhower, Eisenhower's stance to McCarthy was what historians have dubbed the hidden hand, where he did precisely what you said. He ignored him. He tried to let McCarthy do himself in. And that would eventually work in 1954. But in the meantime... From the beginning of 1953 to the middle of 54, 18 months that McCarthy reigned pretty much supreme, lives were ruined, and that hidden hand, to me, looked more like an empty glove. It was, I think, cowardice by our war hero president, and it was not recognizing that Joe McCarthy was wrecking a big piece of American culture and American democracy. How unfortunate. Yeah, he, he must have weighed, you know, how it's going to affect uh, Eisenhower himself. And Trump is so different from your average conservative Republican, yet they always enable him. It amazes me. I mean, I, you know, I don't like Trump, and I, it, I'm even sometimes, oftentimes more angry that the at the Republicans in the Senate particularly who enable him, and those some, some real creeps in the House, too. Tell us about why McCarthy's fellow Republicans took so long to repudiate him and how that may relate to today. So it relates to today in two ways, and I want to actually start with the Democrats. The Democrats in McCarthy's era tried to take on McCarthy a well-known senator from Maryland named Millard Tidings investigated McCarthy's early charges in Wheeling. He wrote a report concluding that McCarthy was a fraud and a hoax, and McCarthy was outraged. In, at the uh, end of 1950, that year that the Wheeling charges were raised, Joe McCarthy went to Maryland. He recruited a Republican candidate to take on the powerful Senator Tidings. He got him financial backing from McCarthy's Texas oil men buddies. He showed him every dirty trick in the McCarthy playbook, and tidings went down to defeat. 
And after that, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, Mm -hmm. who was a Democratic minority leader, basically put out the word to his Democratic uh, colleagues, we're going to let Republicans eventually have to go after McCarthy. We're not going to give up more of our members. Republicans, at the same time, when they got the majority, along with the Eisenhower landslide of 1952, they decided that they had such a narrow majority that they weren't going to take on one of their own members and threaten a safe Republican seat in Wisconsin. So a guy who should have known better named Taft, the Uh Senate Majority Leader, um, Robert Taft from Ohio, knew just the damage McCarthy was doing. He admitted it to his friends, but he said, we're going to let this guy keep going. And if that isn't the absolute model for Mitch McConnell today, Mitch McConnell, who I covered as a cub reporter at the Courier-Journal newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky, when Mitch McConnell was starting out as the chairman of the county commission in the Louisville area, Mm. Mitch McConnell absolutely knows the damage Donald Trump is doing. Mitch McConnell, in moments of candor, has talked about how he despises Donald Trump. But Mitch McConnell cares about one thing more than anything, which is holding on to his power, his his Senate majority, and Republican power in Washington. And so I'm convinced that the moment that McConnell will cut bait with Donald Trump is the moment McConnell's own seat and his majority in the Senate are threatened. And that moment might be coming soon, but it sure as heck hasn't happened yet. I'm reminded of uh, Watergate and Nixon. A lot of Republicans, it took them a long time until they felt their own seats may have been threatened by backing Nixon. Funny how that works with power. Uh, So what? Sad how it works with power. And the only hope and the whole point of a show like yours is that we will recognize in our history that history isn't just about history, it's about lessons for today. Absolutely. And I just wrote an op-ed for the Utah newspaper, for the Salt Lake City newspaper this past weekend, which was basically saying to Mitt Romney, our former governor and their now senator, Mm -hmm. more power to you when you cut bait with your fellow Republicans and take on Donald Trump. It might not look good for you today, but history and your legacy will judge you kindly the same way they did Joe McCarthy's early critics. Sometimes I wonder if if Romney would just say, "I'm going to run," the race would be over. I, 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 he timing is everything. It you know politics is theater. Uh, it's yeah, it's an interesting position that Romney is in. He's got to be weighing you know, his self interest as well. And speaking of interest, what you, you mentioned Texas oil. What moneyed interests were McCarthy's enablers? There's always money behind these guys. Who was it for him? So there is, and we weren't sure of what that was, but one of the sets of papers that I had access to was McCarthy's family, after 60 years of keeping all of his records under lock and key, let me look at all his personal and professional papers that were being stored at his alma mater, Marquette University. And one of the things those records showed was where the money came from. Ah. And it came from right-wing supporters all across America, but the place that really stood out to me in terms of having the deepest pocketed supporters, and more of them, was Texas oil money. And Joe McCarthy, in addition to having won favor with the Texas oil men because of his conservative politics, won favor with them because he supported their interest in the U.S. Senate. 
The media in Texas dubbed him the third senator from Texas. Texas oilmen recognized uh. their self-interest, recognized their political interests, and they wrote checks not just for Joe McCarthy, but for people like the opponent of Senator Tidings in Maryland, where McCarthy would pick out a fellow senator that he disliked, his moneyed people would come in and back their opponent as Joe McCarthy was backing the opponent. Uh, not too complicated there. My goodness, it's uh, connecting, you know, this straight line. Uh, it's a shame how that happens, but that, you know, some good things happen in democracy, some bad things. I still prefer it to other systems. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, Joe McCarthy with uh, author of a new book, uh, Larry Ty, Demagogue, The Life and Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. And there are long shadows throughout history that I've known the shadow is still in effect. And one of the things supporters say about uh, Donald Trump is that he speaks his mind. They like that. He's not politically correct, whatever that means. The public loved McCarthy passionately and for a long time was there some similarity about him speaking his mind and being you know sort of some sort of corollary between uh, uh, Trump and him on not being politically correct the term wasn't around then but is there some connection there there's a huge connection there that McCarthy showed that when he would speak off the cuff with what looked like every man language uh-huh. that the language of the common person as opposed to all the elites that he was railing against, that the public loved it. Donald Trump learned that, and he learned it not in the abstract. So everybody who comes out with a book says, geez, to understand what's going on today, you've got to understand my character pulled from history. Well, I'm making, I think, more than a hypothetical point, because there was a flesh-and-blood through line from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump. And that flesh-and-blood through-line was named Roy Cohn. That Donald Trump's tutor in the 1980s, Mm -hmm. when he was entering this cutthroat world of New York real estate, was none other than Joe McCarthy's protege from the 1950s. And Donald Trump says, every time he gets into trouble, he says, I sure wish I had a Roy Cohn here to tell me what to do. And what I think if he would be willing to be truly un-PC and be honest, what he would be saying is, I wish I had Joe McCarthy here to tell me what to do. (laughs) Well, your research took you deep into areas that had never been revealed about McCarthy. Aside from the Inquisition-like public hearings that were awful enough, you learned of closed-door hearings. What was the unvarnished Joe like in those closed hearings when he thought nobody was looking? So there are two ways to answer that. One is by telling you what happened there. And what happened there is that any pretense of caring about the rights of the accused went out the window because nobody was watching and he could do whatever he wanted. And what he wanted was to almost summarily accuse the accused of being guilty. Mm. It was to call them Fifth Amendment communists. It was to hold one-man hearings in violation of Senate traditions, And it was in the morning to appear relatively reasonable when he was sober. In the afternoon, after Uh, he had a lunch, his trademark lunch of a burger, a raw onion, and whiskey, he would lose his patience incredibly quickly. 
And I think we can now say that it was a lubricated lunch mm. that explains his afternoon behavior. But if that's sort of the micro level of what we could see in those closed door transcripts, the macro level was that he used them very cynically, I think, to do a test run for what he would do in public sessions. If a witness looked too strong and too eloquent and too able to rebut his charges, they never showed up in the public hearings. It was the witnesses who would give in and who would cave to his badgering who showed up in front of the print reporters and the TV cameras. Uh, fear, fear. And fear. There were the Army McCarthy hearings, which, you know, when I was a kid, I thought, Army McCarthy hearings? What? Army? They're the good guys, aren't they? I mean, after World War II. And they, they were his kind of undoing. But he accused the Army of being having communists in it. It was just like, what? How can you do that? And that famous comment by Joe Welsh after all this time, when he said, when it, that it began his quick downward spiral, he said, of course, at long last, have you left no sense of decency? Famous, famous quote. Where did that come from? Was it spontaneous, or do you think it was well-timed and planned stagecraft? So I think that from all the research I did, I'm a big fan of Joe Welch's, and I think he was truly outraged at McCarthy's attack on his young legal associate, calling him a leftist. The truth is that Welch himself had talked about that, knowing that it was going to become an issue, had talked about it with the New York Times in a story, and I think Welch had that line ready to go, knowing that at some point during the hearings, McCarthy would do something that was a step too far, and that uh -huh. Welch was ready to spring that line. Yeah. But more important than Welch's line, while history tells us that's the turning point in the hearing, I think the turning point was when the public themselves watched Joe McCarthy on their TV screens day after day and realized that rather than being their champion, which is how they saw him when the hearing started, they realized he was the town bully. And it was McCarthy who, like Eisenhower had predicted, did himself in. And at the start of the hearings, he had what George Gallup told us was a full 50% of America thinking he was doing a great job. By the end of the hearings that summer of 1954, that went from 50 to 34%, and it was all over. It was over because McCarthy had done himself in with the public. It was over because his Senate enablers stopped enabling him and finally censured him. And McCarthy's life lasted until 57, right. but his movement ended in 1954. His movement forward, but you know, as as you're talking, uh, you know, people saw him as a champion and then shown as a bully. What about, you know, what what lessons can we learn from McCarthy about the country's ongoing attraction to bullies? And you know, it seems like people know that uh, Trump is a bully, but maybe they don't care. Is that changed? Do you think? I mean, so I think the first line of my book was, this is a book about America's love affair with bullies. Uh, and I think we, every time I think that we have outgrown that, no. we're very good at taking on bullies in the classroom. But every time I think we've outgrown it in our politics, something happens. 
with the latest incarnation, as we've talked, being Donald Trump, mm -hmm. to show that it's not over. On the other hand, I'm an optimist. And my book, I think, is, even though it's about a bleak character like Joe McCarthy, it's a good news story. And the good news is that every demagogue in American history, given the rope, hung themselves. The good news is that we as Americans, given the time, eventually rediscover our better nature. And I think that's happening right now as well. Gosh, I hope so. I don't know. I mean, there's some people who think, well, the economy will be booming by the uh, election time and we'll have some hope for a uh, uh, inoculation against uh, coronavirus. I don't know. I, I, I always had advice, uh, my own political campaign is to always run like you're 10 points behind. We can never be too uh, sure or complacent. He died, when he died at age 49, in 1957, the official cause of death was acute hepatitis. You got to look at his actual medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital. What is known about his alcoholism? And you mentioned how in the afternoons after his lunches, uh, he got a little bit uh, worse. Did it? Do you think the other people in the Senate could see him that, oh, this guy's really, uh, that the alcohol is not doing him any, uh, any good? And was it totally hidden? Go ahead. So they did, from what other senators have said, a number of them recognized or actually saw him in Senate proceedings, in the men's room after a proceeding, taking a swig of whiskey. Uh, but I think that we only know now, with those records being open, just how consumed he was by alcohol. He was always a heavy drinker in his days, at his height of his power. After his censure in December of 1954, he became an outright drunk. And we measure it in the records. The doctors were recording that he was drinking a fifth of whiskey a day. It was, it was documented. So were the delirium tremens that he would be treated for repeatedly. And in the end, acute hepatitis may have been one of the many complications going on in his body. But I sat down and looked at those medical records with the just-retired dean of the Harvard Medical School and the just-retired editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, and they concluded along with me that it was alcohol that killed him. And that is, it's tragic in two ways. One is tragic because the stigma was so great of mm. alcoholism back then mm. that his doctors gave a different cause of death to protect the family from the embarrassment. And it is bad because... It suggests how tragic this guy's life was in his last years when he was one of the only ones who still believed in his campaign and in his rightness. He started out an opportunist, not believing the charges he was rendering, yeah. and by the end, he and his wife were among the only two people, I think, that truly believed everything he was saying. They actually believed it. And my understanding is these alleged lists of communists, were there... You know, he had, what, 205 names of people who worked communists in the State Department. That was not true, was it? Or was it? Uh, so it wasn't true. Uh, it wasn't true in two ways. One is the list he had of names were not communists in the State Department, and he didn't have a list of 205 names. The number kept changing. At one point, shortly after his wheeling speech, the number became 57 and I'm convinced as a sign of how ludicrous those numbers were, I'm convinced, and more importantly, some people at the time were convinced that it was that he loved steaks and hamburgers, 
He loved Heinz 57 sauce, and that was just the number that stuck in his hand. <laughs> Fascinating story. And there is hope. Yes, there is hope that bullies, after a while, aren't appreciated. We can learn from history. We very rarely do, if ever, but we can do that. Fascinating story. Larry Ty, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. The book is called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. Thank you so much. Fascinating. Thanks for having me, Bert, and it was a great time being with you. Thank you. feeling sad and kind of blue I didn't know what I was gonna do the communists was coming around they were in the air on on the ground they were all over so I ran down most hurriedly and joined the John Birch Society I got me a secret membership card Started walking home to my backyard Looking on the sidewalk Underneath the hitches Well, I was looking everywhere for them gall darn reds I got up in the morning, looked under my bed Looked behind the kitchen, behind the door Tore loose the kitchen floor, couldn't find them Behind the sofa, behind the chair Looking for them reds everywhere Looked way up my chimney hole Even deep down inside my toilet bowl They got away I heard some footsteps by the front porch door So I grabbed my shotgun from the floor I snuck around the house with a huff and a hiss saying, hands up, you communist, it was the mailman. He punched me out. Well, I was sitting home alone and I started to sweat. I figured they was on my television set. Peeked behind a picture frame Got a shock from my feet That hit my brain Them reds did it The ones on Hootenanny Well I quit my job So I could uh, work alone I got a magnifying glass Like Sherlock Holmes some clues from my detective bag I discovered red stripes and the American flag Old Betsy Ross started thinking straight when I run out of things to investigate couldn't imagine doing anything else and I'm home investigating myself oh we don't find out too much <laughs> good God <laughs> 